Welcome to Hub & Flow, a podcast produced by Natural Gas Intelligence. On a mission to provide transparency to the natural gas market, Hub & Flow focuses on key fundamentals driving the price of natural gas and LNG in the United States, Canada, and Mexico. Natural Gas Intelligence, or NGI, is a subscription-based price reporting agency, which means we provide trusted and independent natural gas pricing and news for the North American market. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of NGI's Hub & Flow podcast. I'm Jameson Coughlin, editor of LNG Insight, which provides subscribers with North American LNG news and pricing, plus key European and Asian fundamentals. Today, I'm joined by our very own Jacob Dick, uh, an associate LNG editor here at NGI. I work very closely with him each day to bring you all news from the global gas market. Welcome, Jacob. Thanks for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on. It's good to be here. Yeah, yeah, it's your uh, it's your first time on the podcast, so I'll try to um, take it easy on you for sure. We've been pretty busy this year. It's been a crazy time, especially since Russia invaded Ukraine, sort of pushed gas center stage, and um, I guess really reshuffled the global energy order. And you know, one of the craziest things has been Freeport LNG in Texas, which is what we're going to talk about today. You know, we were we were mining our business back in June. Uh, having a, a normal news day, and then all of a sudden the plant literally exploded, and it's it's been offline since then. This has been a huge story in the U.S. It's been a huge story globally. So it's November twenty first today. You know we had some breakthrough news on this late last week, and, and we'll get to that shortly. But I, I just want to put this into perspective really quickly. Freeport is is one of the largest export terminals in the U.S and really the world for that matter. It has a capacity of about 2.4 billion cubic feet per day. So when it was knocked offline, that took out a significant chunk of demand in the United States, pushing gas prices lower here and actually halting a rally towards $10 at the time. Of course, it pushed overseas prices up too, because all that supply was you know, suddenly off the market. Jacob and I have, have both covered this but I think that you've followed this a little bit more closely lately, Jacob, and that's why I wanted you to come online today for the podcast. You know, the plant is is still offline. Freeport initially guided for an October restart. They later pushed that back to mid-November, which, you know, they're clearly not going to make. So, Jacob, really simple question, I guess. Where are we at? I mean, there's been a lot of rumors out there. There's still, you know, a lot that needs to happen before the plant can start up. Well, before a couple of days ago, I would probably would have spent a lot of time talking about the root cause uh, failure analysis that um, came out last week. They kind of uh, gave us the first official details from uh, the company, an independent investigator, about what caused the explosion. But Outside of all of the sparse official statements we've got from regulators and Freeport, uh, most of the news has been about speculation and people trying to tally the numbers of how long exactly would it take uh, for Freeport to get approval from federal regulators for a restart and how could that possibly happen in, in mid-November. And what we learned out, what we learned Friday 
from Freeport themselves is that it was not possible. And uh, they only have about 90% of their estimated work completed. And they believe that they should be on track for a mid-December restart, um, given that uh, regulators approve all of their supplemental reports and information that they provided. Okay, so you said 90% of that work is complete, right? Yeah, so so they say, and that and that includes work on um, not just repairing parts of the the transfer equipment near the the storage and, and part of a uh, dock, but uh, also implementing some of these findings that they they found that they need to improve and possibly replace certain procedures, uh, mostly valves. Right, right. So okay, we're on track here then for a uh, mid December startup at this point. And I just kind of did a piggyback on what you said there. Um, this happened on some piping near the storage tank area. So it, it didn't even impact the liquefaction trains, which is one of the things that people were trying to figure out very early on after the explosion. But you know, the root cause failure analysis, uh, as you mentioned, said that there was some pretty extensive damage. So it's, it's taking some time and there's always a chance for, for things to to slide again, I guess. But, you know, I, I think it's important to note too, and this has kind of gotten lost in the conversation a little bit, maybe until late last week, but it, it is that they're, they're only going to come back at partial service, right? So the plan is to ramp up to, to 2 billion cubic feet a day by January, right? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. That was going to be my next uh, point. So we're talking about a mid-December restart but we're also talking about each of the, those three trains at Freeport has to start up independently one after another. So maybe by the end of January, they're saying we might have two BCF a day of export capacity back online, and we won't get the full kit and caboodle until maybe March. Okay, okay, yeah, and that, that's an important distinction because if they hit 2 billion cubic feet a day by January, that's roughly 85% of their capacity, or basically it's enough to fulfill their contracts. So you don't then get that 2.4 billion cubic feet a day back online until March, and at that point, I think that they would be able to sell more spot supplies into the market, which is what global buyers need right now. So, um, yeah, glad I asked that follow-up there. You know, another thing, too, that, that was interesting, and you, you delved into this certainly more than I did. I kind of only glanced at it. But, you know, I understand that there was a labor element to all this. I guess human error played a role in the accident. I mean, can you, can you talk about that at all? Yeah. So I've, I've gone through a couple of these incidents. The, I think the one I reported the most extensively before this was the explosion at the uh, TPC chemical plant in Port Natchez. And this kind of reminded me of that. It's the typical kind of findings you see after an industrial accident like this. Lots of technical recommendations, uh, lots of things about pipe protections and valve procedures here. And they're the kind of things that probably get you excited if you're an engineer or you you really dig down into what's what's a good investment, what's a company that's uh, going to keep running and not have a lot of maintenance issues. But the thing I found the most interesting is outside of all of these technical recommendations and the engineering issues that may have contributed to this accident was the fact that they seem to pinpoint the fact that a lot of the staff there were incredibly overworked and and might have had operator fatigue, and that's why they missed the early signs of some of the technical breakdowns that might have attributed to the explosion actually happening. And so 
one of the responses to that is Freeport immediately came out on Friday and said they were going to expand their staffing by 30%. And I, uh, we believe that's a reaction to the fact that the report found 97% of its employees uh, leading up to that June incident reported having overtime. 20% of those employees, mostly operators, worked 130% of their scheduled hours, and the average shift was more than 12 hours long. Yeah, those are interesting numbers. I mean, clearly a, a lot of global demand right now for uh, you know U.S. LNG, and it sounds like they were they were they were very busy at, at Freeport trying to grapple with that. But you know, when I stop and think about this, I mean, maybe there's a bigger story here. I think you and I were talking about this a few days ago. But you know, some of these plants they they don't announce maintenance, whether it's planned or unplanned, so you don't. You don't always know what's what's getting done and when, but these other U.S. terminals have have pretty well been running at 100% utilization this year. So you know you have to wonder if if there's potential for this sort of thing to happen again at another facility. And you know I also wonder if it's going to be difficult for Freeport to boost staffing given some of the the labor shortages that the industry has faced recently. So I mean. Have you thought about this at all? I mean, these are certainly things that kind of cross my mind as, as I was looking at this stuff. I think without a doubt, at least in, in my opinion, it would be difficult to make such a quick expansion of their their staffing. I think maybe they said in their report that it started immediately and they didn't, they had kind of had an open-ended period when, when they would like to achieve that staffing. But if they would like to do it within the next couple months or at least as they're trying to ramp up their stage four expansion and the contracting on that project, it's going to be expensive and it's going to be hard in this labor market. But I think the thing that I've thought about the most this this week as related to this incident is um, not just how this explosion has left the, the market in kind of disarray, but kind of the conversations we were having up into June and how the market was so tight and how Europe was going to be really desperate for every volume possible and that these plants were running as much as they could and that eventually there probably would be a maintenance incident. So I think we are talking about Freeport right now and how this incident has affected the market. We could have easily been talking about another large terminal or possibly multiple. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, there's definitely some food for thought there. So I guess, I mean, all that aside, I was just kind of thinking out loud there. But, you know, what comes next, Jacob? I think that the company has to check some regulatory boxes before it can actually bring the the plant back online, right? Yeah, so now they'll have to complete that remaining 10% of the remedial work. And the tricky part, at least for the timeline, is once you've completed that, you and you have to document it. You have to send it in the right package that the uh, regulators want to look at, and then they're going to spend the time uh, to review it, and then hopefully that uh, matches up with Freeport's timeline for when they would like to restart and and get their contractors out of the site. There'll be lots of cleanup, I imagine. Okay. Okay. So pretty pretty straightforward there kind of related. I mean, I don't really think that the market has been too pleased with, you know, how the company has has communicated its progress. To be fair, they've done better with that, you know, in in recent days as they've moved deeper into the regulatory process. 
You know, I should say they've also been pretty responsive to the media too. Maybe not with the level of details that, that some would like, but, you know, up until Friday, there was a lack of clarity out there on the restart that has really sort of moved the market at, at all these different points since June. So I guess that kind of segues into my next question here. I mean, can you talk a little bit more about what this has done to prices in the U.S., to prices in Europe, in Asia, overseas? Can you talk about how it's moved the market at all? Yeah. So I I was thinking a little bit about this in two different terms. There's the obvious issue with supply. I think that we've seen maybe less noted impact on the European side that these these different delays and forecasts for a, maybe a shortage on supply during the winter period than on domestic prices where the threat of not enough export, not enough demand has kind of been depressing domestic natural gas prices. But I think it is definitely hurting people that were uh, dedicated off-takers of Freeport. Like um, a couple of weeks ago, I wrote about how Uniper was uh, expecting not just a millions in loss from the cargos that they didn't get from P- Freeport, but having to repurchase those lost volumes at the spot market. Devastated their bottom line in that quarter, as it has since June. <laughs> and so I think there's also the lost volumes, but then there's the added competition and how that is going to stoke both Asian and European prices, I think is really the shadow that this event has cast. Right, right. I think I think a lot of the off-takers, too, are from Asia. Yeah, that is right. So we, we heard from Osaka Gas last week that they were kind of one of the major indicators before Freeport came out and said they officially uh, we're probably going to delay to mid-December when Osaka, during their earnings report, said that they had not heard of any incoming cargoes. That's kind of when we all realized the writings on the wall. Okay, yeah, I was, I was a little foggy on that. It had been a while since I, I looked at their contracts. Okay, I think that that does it. I mean, I, we were just looking for a for a quick update on this. It's 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 been a hot topic, but from from my perspective here, if I if I would leave us with any last words. It would be that I think this outage has been the longest, if not one of the longest, in the modern LNG era on the Gulf Coast. And if anything, and you kind of touched on this, it has really shown how LNG exports are moving both the global and U.S. gas markets, right? I mean, if you weren't a believer in that before, you almost have to be now. Particularly here in the United States, there's not as much flexibility anymore as there used to be for the gas grid to to respond to these sorts of outages, baseload demand pull coming from these export plants, you know, pipeline maintenance or whatever. You know, I think we've seen that plain and simple here. And I'd expect more volatility in the years ahead as, as we get more plants coming online. And, you know, I, I think that, that that's a good place for us to stop unless you have anything else you want to add, Jacob. No, I think that covers it. Just um, everyone keep an eye on the content we have rolling out and hopefully we'll have another update for you soon. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And I I think that that'll uh, do it for today then. Thanks again for joining us, Jacob. Uh, You know, we really uh, enjoyed having you on and certainly hope to hear more from you, um, like you said, as we expand our LNG coverage here at NGI. And thanks to all of you for listening to NGI's Hub and Flow podcast. Dependable data drives informed business decisions. Trust NGI to provide your natural gas and LNG data for North America. 
If your business requires daily, weekly, or midweek pricing data, forward curves, or flow data, NGI has a reliable product suite to support you. Visit natgasintel.com backslash services to understand what we have to offer and how we can help you and your business today. Thank you for listening to NGI's Hub & Flow podcast today. We encourage you to subscribe to the podcast, rate and review it, and please do share it with your colleagues. A trusted provider of natural gas news, data, and pricing information for North America, NGI offers subscription-based products. Please visit natgasintel.com if you are interested in NGI and our services. If you would like to dive deeper into this subject, additional resources are available on our website as well. Just visit natgasintel.com and click on the resources tab to find the podcast page.